Well, good morning, Crossroads Bible Church. I'm just going to go ahead and lead with the best thing that I can say to you now is that it's good to be home. It's good to be home. Crossroads Bible Church, you are my home. Uh, I can say this not just because uh, I'm a part of a church plant that you sent out, Trinity Mission Church. Of course I can say it because of that. But I can say this also because when we landed, my family and I landed in Grand Rapids, Michigan, you were the church where we found genuine worship of Jesus Christ. You are the body of believers, my family, who were the very people that brought meals to my house when we had a child, when we were trying to navigate living here and not where we thought we were supposed to be. You were the body of Christ who loved me and my family really well, and because of that, it's good to be home. It's really good to be home. I feel like a college student that just went away to my first semester of school, and this is my trip back for Thanksgiving. I get to sit on the comfortable couch and eat the food that only mom can cook. It's good to be home. And just to give you a little bit of an update of what is going on, or what God is doing at Trinity Mission Church just a mile away, is God is doing incredible things. I can say this for myself, that this is the best work that I've ever done. It's the best work that I've ever done. Of course, I can say this because we can talk about this thing called growth, right? Numerical growth, how we are growing numerically. And of course, that is something to celebrate at Trinity Mission Church. But the growth that gets me the most excited is that there is a group of people growing in the way that they know Jesus as their teacher, as their master, as their Lord and their Savior. I love this work. This is also, at the same time, the hardest thing I've ever done. Rod often says to this body, this church, my family, says that planting Crossroads Bible Church was the hardest thing he could ever done, and I now know what he means. Because in the last 10 months, I've never experienced pain and disappointment like I ever have in the work that I've done. Uh, It's not just the things that have happened to me and to this wonderful group of Christians just a mile down the road. It's also the way in which God is doing heart work in my own life. Yes, heart work, which is also hard work. God is upending all the things that I used to hold onto very closely to define me as a leader, as a pastor, as a preacher. God is undoing those things to make me more of a disciple of his. And that is good work, but it is also the hardest thing I've ever done. But guess what? I love it. I love doing this work because I get to sit in the front row of watching God raise up a group of kingdom mischief makers who are causing all sorts of problems in Grand Rapids and beyond. And the way that this group of Christians is doing that is they're leading with the gospel and they are just watching the Holy Spirit do exciting things. This is the work I get to do and I love it. Can you see the excitement in my eyes? It's there. And this leads us into our message this morning. Yes, our message this morning emerges out of the question that Rod asked me to bring to our time together. Yes, Rod asked me to preach my heart for the church in Grand Rapids. To preach what is burning on my heart for Jesus' body. That is what the church is. We are the living, breathing body of Jesus in Grand Rapids. 
And what is burning in my heart is the same thing that burned in my heart 17 years ago when I first became a Christian, and that is to help other Christians speak and live the gospel. That the only work that I want to commit my life to is to help others and myself better communicate the euangelion, the good news, because the gospel is the power to raise the dead, to save sinners from death. It is the power that changes world history, and all I want to do is give us better language, better ways to live it out in our bodies so the broken world around us can see this good news for themselves. Now, as I say this, I'm sure there's not much like, opposition to it, but there are some misconceptions about being a church that is focused on communicating the gospel. There might be some of us here today that in our heads just now, we like hearing this, but there are some concerns that we can wheel out. Let me wheel out those misconceptions for you now. The first conception, misconception is that if a church becomes too focused on communicating the gospel, it'll become a church that's not focused on discipleship. A second misconception that can come into our minds about working harder at speaking and living out the gospel is that we can become a church that becomes biblically illiterate, that we will spend less time searching the scriptures and more time running around. And then there's one more misconception, and this is actually not a misconception, but that there's this idea that if churches become too focused on the gospel, they will become too outwardly focused. Let's confront those misconceptions right now. When groups of Christians, churches, become focused on the way that they communicate the euangelion, the good news, they will grow as disciples because the more that they learn the gospel, the more they're going to learn and know the one who is the gospel. Second misconception that if we spend too much time talking about the good news, we're not going to read enough of the Bible. That's not true. <laughs> From Jersey, sometimes other words slip out of my mouth. It's not true because to know the gospel means we must pour into that book, God's word, to know it better. And then finally, let me just go ahead and say this as clearly as I possibly can. The church is outwardly focused because the church exists for the world. That throughout the scriptures, it becomes very clear to us that just as the Father so loved the world, he set his only son, in the same way he is sending his church to make the good news known of what his son has done for us at the cross where Jesus died to save it. It is good for us to continue to grow as we communicate the gospel with our words and the way that we live out our lives. Is it not? Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. All right. Well, with that being said, what we're going to do today is spend our time looking at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Now, before you flip through those pages and zero in on Galatians chapter 2, let me give you just enough background to make sense of the book of Galatians. Just enough. Book of Galatians, written by a guy named Paul the church planner. Did you catch that? Paul the church planner? Okay, church planner, Paul, never mind. Whew. Paul the apostle was also a church planner, but Paul is also the one who wrote the book of Galatians. And he wrote it to a church that he had already planted, or I should say, 
church is. Yes, churches that were in a geographical region called Galatia, just like we live in the Midwest, a geographical region. Well, Galatia was a geographical region a long time ago, and Paul helped plant churches in those areas. And from what we can tell in the book of Galatians, they had a ton of success, that they were able to effectively communicate the gospel. People believed and became Jesus's body in those places. Well, after a period of time, Paul left Galatia and went to other regions to plant churches. And as he's doing this good work of church planting, uh, he gets a word from folks from Galatia. They come to him and they tell him, hey, Paul, I've got bad news. Yes, since you've left, the bad news is some false teachers, false brothers are now preaching a gospel of Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus plus some other things means salvation. Uh, The message of these false teachers was this. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who came down to earth to save us from our sins. Jesus is the one who brings Gentiles into the Israelite Jewish faith. He brings them into our covenantal relationship with the Father, which means plus they must be circumcised, which means plus they must eat the right foods, which means plus they, might hold, they must hold the right feasts throughout the year like Passover. By doing those things, the plus things, then and only then can they be saved. Paul, in the midst of planting a church, dropped everything, grabbed his fountain pen, and began to write the book of Galatians as a letter to unpack the gospel. So the passage we are going to look at is a passage that wonderfully, richly, deeply unpacks the good news. And before we go there, let's just lay out the course in front of us, our strategy, our plan of attack. We have four things we want to accomplish. Here they are. After we read this passage, we're going to spend some time talking about the outcome of the gospel. What are the implications? What are the consequences of the good news for our everyday lives? And then second, what we're going to do is actually talk about the gospel, the content, the event, the person who is the gospel. And then third, we're going to spend some time talking about the threat, the obstacle, our moment of Jesus plus that can easily happen in 2018 right here in Grand Rapids. What could that look like for us to become false teachers of the gospel? And then lastly, we will end our time with the solution. The way in which the threat, the obstacle will not become one that slows us down but will be removed in such a way that we all will be effective communicators of the gospel. Sound like a good plan? Please stand as you're able as I read to you Galatians chapter 2, 15 through 21. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, it's up on the screen. Here we go. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. The word of the Lord. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we, yes, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild, rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ now lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Maybe you seated. The outcome of the gospel seems like a weird place to start, yeah? I mean, usually you like to start with the thing that makes an outcome happen. In this case, we should normally begin our time by talking about the actual gospel and then second, move into the outcome, the implications of the gospel. But our passage doesn't lead that way. Our passage first starts with the outcome. So Crossroads Bible Church, Bible Church, we are going to follow the text really closely and not be distracted by that downpour out there where cats and dogs are literally hitting the ground. Oh, wait, that's hail. Never mind. Welcome to West Michigan. Okay, the outcome of the gospel. That's hard to compete with. <laughs> so we'll work a little harder. Okay, the outcome of the gospel is going to require us to translate a very common, popular, needed word of the Christian faith. Yes, we are going to have to roll up our sleeves and do some work of translation of a word that many of us, if not all of us, have become familiar with as Protestant Christians. That word is justified. The word is justified. It's right there four times in our passage where Paul says we are justified. Other places he uses the word justification. This is an important word to our faith in Jesus Christ. This is a word that has become the epicenter of our understanding of salvation going back exactly 501 years almost to today. Yes, 501 years ago in church history, there is this thing that happened called the Protestant Reformation. How many of you have heard of the Protestant Reformation? Please show your hands. Good. Many of us have heard of this event. Uh, the Protestant Reformation is this moment where a fellow by the name of Martin Luther, a Catholic monk, he is reading Galatians and the book of Romans, and while he's reading this thing, he notices something he's never noticed before, that we are in fact justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. This is important for Luther and then John Calvin. Have you heard of John Calvin, West Michigan? Okay. <laughs> I love John Calvin. He's a great guy. He's my favorite. Uh, Martin Luther has this moment to correct the then church 501 years ago because they were in a moment of Jesus plus. This is not a moment for us Protestants to bash other Christians. We all have bad moments in our history of the faith, but it was in this moment 501 years ago that the church based out of Rome, Italy, was a church that was communicating, yes, we are justified by Jesus, we are saved by him, 
but that is infused into our life to do good works, which is a part of our salvation. Luther reads the text and says, nine, no way. He's German. He wasn't Dutch. Secret, John Calvin wasn't Dutch. I'm going to be in so much trouble. (laughs) But they saw with clarity that the center of the outcome of the gospel is the good news that we don't have to do hard work. There is no plus Jesus that we have to fulfill, but the work has been accomplished for us. And this word justification is a good translation of dikaio, the Greek word, dikaio, which is an important word in Paul's language because it also builds into other words like justice, righteousness, justification. But in this language, Luther and Calvin and another guy named Swingley started to create a metaphor to help make sense of what it means to be justified, the outcome of the gospel. That metaphor looks like this. It's a courtroom scene. And in the courtroom scene, there is a judge, another dikaio word, a judge who is also God, the judge. Scripture is clear. God is a judge, the judge. And in this scene, he is the judge with the gavel, and he's looking down on all of us. Yes, we are all there. We are defendants. We are, of course, guilty of the crime of sin. And God has every reason to bang the gavel and declare us guilty. But in this courtroom scene that Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others have helped construct as faithful readers of the Bible, in this scene, Jesus enters the scene, and what he says is, because of my sacrifice, they are now justified. They can now be declared innocent because my righteousness is imputed, put onto them. So, Father, when you see them as the judge, You no longer see them as sinners. You see them as me. My righteousness. Justification is the outcome of the gospel according to Luther, Calvin, and others because it's a moment of declaration, pronouncement of innocence. Again, this is not wrong. But this translation is limited, limited. It's limited to the event that when we die, we're in this courtroom scene, and it's at that moment we get to go up to heaven and not down to H-E double hockey sticks, right? In that moment when we die, we are declared innocent so we can be in heaven with the Father forever. This is good news, and so this is a part of the outcome. And then continuing with this idea of justification this way, it leads into the future final judgment when God, the judge, decides the fate of all the living and the dead, the entire cosmos, the universe. It is in that moment we will be once again declared as innocent because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is part of the outcome of the gospel, but again, it is too limited. It is too limited because it only deals with future events. There's got to be something more, something here and now that we can grab a hold of, or more importantly, be grabbed to hold by it. The good news has to have implications, consequences for us here today. 
Even more than that, the metaphor of a courtroom gives us the image that the Christian life, the good news of our salvation happens in a sterile environment in which God is limited to being a judge who judges our righteousness of doing the right things and the wrong things. Can you see with me that there's another limitation to this word, a good word, that it gives us the false image, a limited image that we are simply people who are pronounced innocent and then get to run away until we die. Do you see the limitations with me? They're not wrong, but it's limited. Again, the outcome of the gospel has to include right now. There's a group of scholars who study the Bible. These are folks, women and men, who've devoted their entire lives to studying the New Testament. And for the last 50 to 70 years or so, they've really been seeing this word justification, not disagreeing with it, but seeing that it has limitations, where it's constructed a way of seeing salvation as just a future event. So what they've been trying to do is, how does the gospel have here and now consequences? And one of those scholars goes by the name of J. Lewis Martin. J. Lewis Martin, someone that I've been reading for five years, and just like last month, I finally understood what he's saying. Five years. That's a long time to read somebody and not know what they're saying. But what I see Martin say is that when the word justified happens in Galatians chapter 2, it would be better for us to translate it as rectified. Rectification, not justification. Not that justification is wrong, according to Martin, but it can't be limited to just when we die and in the future final judgment. There has to be implications right now. And in Martin's very own words, he says... To be rectified means this, we have been made right. We have been corrected. We have been made whole. The things that were once broken have now been mended. The injuries which used to slow us down have been completely healed. All the things that used to be in our way have been removed because we have been made right. We have been rectified. Now, some of you are looking at me going, wow, this is really weird to talk about this in this way. Why does this matter for us? Let's just hang on to the words that we've used to cling on to. Please, hang on to justified, but add this one too. Because the judge is not just a judge. The judge, God, is also our father. Yes, our father. And when we read the scriptures, especially the Old Testament of the Bible, we see over and over again that God reveals himself not just as a judge who measures things that are right and wrong, but we see him as a loving father, a father, a father who's brought us to life by creating us. He's made us. Yes, that is who God is. The same father who wants to provide for his children. Yes, he loves us so much. He wants to give us all the things we need to live the life here and now, which includes having a father that we know wants to wrap his arms around us. He also wants to be the kind of God who protects his children. He wants to go in front of us, behind us, over us, underneath us, to protect us of our enemies, to protect us from natural disasters, to protect us of ourselves from ourselves. God the Father is the Father who has pity on his children. We just went through the minor prophets at Trinity Mission Church over and over again. God says, Israel, my children, my sons and my daughters, I have shown you pity. I have shown you mercy, i.e., I have forgiven you of your sins. 
over and over again because that's what fathers do. Yes, this is exactly what fathers do because fathers want to make things right for their children. They want to make things whole for their children. They want to bring them back to the way that they were intended to be, the daughters and sons that he has created all of us to be. So again, this is not our moment to bash Luther and Calvin and others. Of course not. They were faithful to a very concrete situation 501 years ago when we needed to hear the message of justification. But here today, reading the scriptures, we desperately need to see that the outcome of the gospel is that we have already been made right. Right with the Father. Crossroads Bible Church, how does this sit with you? How does it sit with you to hear the outcome of the gospel is that we have been made right? That the Father isn't limited to being a judge, but the Father is the very one who runs out to meet us even when we get everything wrong, and he's there to wrap his arms around us, to remind us, it is good for you to be with me, son. It is great for you to be with me, daughter. How does this sit with you? Amen. How will it sit with the very people that God right now is sending you to? Yes, right here, right now, God is sending us to people that desperately need to know the outcome of the gospel, especially in this West Michigan context, which I love. I love all the book publishers. I love all the engaging conversations about theology and the Bible. Uh, When we bought our home here on the west side, the housing inspector, a civil engineer in his 60s, he and I had a loving debate over the institutes written by John Calvin. Guess what? He knew them better than I did. (laughs) I love this place. But even in this place, there is this idea many times that we get stuck with the courtroom scene, that we get stuck with the idea that God is just a judge and not a father, that we must do all the right things and not the wrong things. And this is a place that desperately needs to hear the good news, the outcome of the good news, that God is a father who has made things right. If you're having a hard time accepting this, well, let's just get biblical for one more moment. The word righteousness in the Old Testament isn't about doing the right things and not the wrong things. It is not. In the Old Testament, the word righteousness makes sense out of the covenantal relationship that God has with the Israelites. So righteousness in the Old Testament is doing the right thing relationally. God yearns to have his children live in relationship righteously with himself. And I trust that this is going to sit well with not just those of us who are here today or listening on the internet, but this is also going to sit well with those that God is sending us to who might be our son and daughter who walked away from the church. Might be that fellow that we run into at Founders or Roots Brew Shop or some other place. Those very places where God is strategically sending every single one of us to make the outcome of the gospel known that we have been made right here and now. And as we allow this outcome to reign upon our minds and our hearts in a really beautiful way, we got to keep on going. We got to keep on moving to to talk about the most important thing, the gospel. 
We need to spend our time now talking about the epicenter of what bleeds into our lives, this good news of being made right, the very content of the gospel. And as I say this to you now, we are going to continue to translate. We are going to continue to tinker with the text. Hard work, but we can do it. And instead of translating that phrase that's used two times in verse 16, the way that it many times comes to us as justified by faith in Christ, we are going to make the translational move in those two instances that it could be said this way. Justified, rectified, made right by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That we are justified, made right by the faithfulness of Christ. And we can pull this off Grammatically, theologically, and biblically. Let's talk grammatic for just a moment. In the house today, are there any grammarians? I love that grammarians are always shy. <laughs> like to get you all some nice red pens. <laughs> well, grammar helps us get to this place of retranslating this phrase to the faithfulness of Jesus. Uh, it does. And it's not that this is the only way, this new way of seeing it is the only way. You could go grammatically with by, justified by faith in Christ, but you can also equally go to this other way, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Uh, we say this grammatically because there is this thing called nouns. Have you heard of nouns? <laughs> They're not verbs. But nouns are ways of naming what people, place, ideas, things. If it exists, put a name on it, it becomes a noun. And nouns are not always the subject of every sentence or uh, idea or paragraph, right? So sometimes nouns can be used other ways in sentences, paragraphs, and ideas. Sometimes they can come to us in a form called the genitive form. The genitive form. Don't worry too much about that word, but let's focus more on the purpose of the word. The word captures a way a noun can be used to indicate possession. A noun that can be used to indicate possession. I love fountain pens. I love them. I love writing with them. I like checking them out. Um, I love them so much that this pen is the pen of Ken. My oldest son, Colt, is the son of Ken. Here's one that we can all relate to. The Bible is the word of? Word of God. Are you starting to see with me that when we put that word of, it helps us see the possessor, who owns the thing, who's responsible for the thing. It helps us see this more clearly. So grammatically, this works. That phrase, the faithfulness of Christ, is in the genitive form. It makes sense to go with this translation or the traditional one. But now let's talk theologically for just a moment. Theologically for just a moment. If we run with the traditional way of doing it, could you please put the other one back up? There we go. If we run with this one, who is the emphasis on? Faith in Christ. Who is the emphasis on? Our faith in Christ. Who? Us, our faith. Now, the other way, maestro. Thank you. Round of applause for that man. Woo! Who is the emphasis on now? Christ and the work of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ. 
So we can see theologically that this easily could make sense. The gospel is not our faith. Now, let's talk biblically for just a moment. Yes, biblically, this absolutely works. And it's easy for me to share this here at Crossroads Bible Church because you have a preacher named Rod Van Sokoma that uses this word faithfulness quite often. Yes, he uses it quite often the way that he talks about the love of God in the Old Testament of the Bible, that there's this word called hesed, right? The hesed of God, the faithful love of God. Yes, that word captures the loyalty, the commitment, the consistency, the absolute faithfulness of God's love for his children. Uh, The ultimate place where God reveals his faithful love in the Old Testament is the Exodus story. That is the single most talked about story in all the Old Testament because it's the moment where God reveals his chesed love, his faithful love. And the way that God chose to reveal it is he looked at a group of people who were slaves in Egypt. Yes, these Hebrews who have nothing to offer. They're not architects, military strategists. They're not empire builders. They're literally people working in a desert building pyramids for a pharaoh. And God sees those people knowing that they have nothing to offer. And he looks right at them. He says, they are mine. Those are my children. They are my treasured possession. They are my royal priesthood. And God swoops down, he grabs those Israelites, those Hebrews, and he rips them out of slavery to set the captives free. He brings them into a promised land. He brings them into a deep relationship with himself. He makes them his very own children because this is the faithful love of God. This is who God is. This is the ultimate way he expresses himself, always as a father who loves his children. This is exactly who Jesus Christ is because we Christians believe that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So the ultimate way that God in Jesus Christ reveals his love to us is the same way God consistently does it in the Old Testament. A faithful love, a loyal love, a consistent love. And in the New Testament of the Bible, we can see this so clearly that Jesus' faithful love is revealed at the cross where he died. At the cross, that is the exodus of the New Testament. It absolutely is. Because of the cross where Jesus died, Jesus takes our sins and sends them away. He atones for them. The goat is now running away for all of us. Jesus at the cross where he died is the very place where he takes our sins and he replaces, reconciles, exchanges those terrible things that catches us and catches us and ruins our lives. He takes that away and replaces it with forgiveness. The cross is the very place that in Galatians, Paul says it best, that Jesus Christ not only forgives us of our sins, but like the Father does in the Old Testament, he goes down and he delivers all of us. He removes us from this evil and present age and he brings us into a new one. A new one's called the new creation. Not a situation in which God makes old things slightly better. Oh no, it is the very place where God himself in Jesus Christ makes all things new. It's the very thing that God does where lions and lambs walk together, where introverts, extroverts do life together. Republicans, Democrats, it doesn't matter because of the new creation. Yes, the new creation is the good work of the gospel, which makes all things new. 
And at the cross where Jesus died, the courtroom scene is now changed forever. Yes, the courtroom scene is now has to look different because if Jesus is God, well, he can easily stand in the place of the judge. And now in the new way of seeing this metaphor, the judge comes off the bench and stands in our place and he takes on all of our sin, all of our guiltiness, and he sets us free. This is the good news of how we are made right, of course, when we die. Of course, when the final judgment comes, it is the good news right here and right now. Where does faith come in? Where does faith come in? For 501 years, we Christians have been good at talking about that we are justified, made right by faith in Jesus Christ. Does that not mean faith has no place anymore? Of course not. Paul talks about our faith other places in the passage I just read to you and other places in his letters. Faith is absolutely important, but faith can never be the thing that saves us. It can never be the thing that makes us right. The work of Jesus on the cross is the only way we can be made right. It is the faithful love of Jesus. So faith is a response. Faith is our response to what has already been done for us. An analogy, a metaphor, one that will work for us today. Uh, imagine with me for a moment that you're 27. I wish I was 27 right now, but I'm not. I'm a little bit older. But imagine with me that we're 27 years old. And that when we were born 27 years ago, we have an Aunt Marge. Yes, Aunt Marge who lives in Kentucky. And she's down there. We don't know her because we never go to Kentucky. Why would we go to Kentucky? But she's down there. We don't know Aunt Marge. But Aunt Marge, when she heard the good news that we came into this world born, what Aunt Marge did was she started to sock away $100 every month in a savings account for us. Every month, $100 in the savings account. We didn't know this. We turned 27. We want to be a good 27-year-old. Right? We want to buy a home. So we take what little bit of money that we know we have, we go to our realtor, we start getting into bidding wars because that happens in Grand Rapids. This is a really intense market to buy a home. And we lose over and over again. So we go to mom. Hey, mom, you know what? I don't have enough money to buy a house. This is super frustrating. I'm trying to do the right thing. And your mom looks at you and goes, you don't know. You know Aunt Marge down in Kentucky? Oh, wait, you don't know her. Anyways, she's been socking away $100 every month in a savings account for you since you were born. Son, daughter, you have thirty-five grand sitting in a savings account that you didn't know about. And you hear this good news, you're like, woo, I'm taking that money. I'm going to buy a house. Yes, this is great news. At least wouldn't that be what you would do? Or would you say, nah. I don't need that $35,000. I'll just continue to live in your basement, Mom and Dad. <laughs> Touched a nerve, I think, for a few people in this room. <sighs> oh, my Lord. Anyways, you would receive the gift. You would take it, and then you'd write a beautiful thank you card to Aunt Marge, who we never met, in the same way. No, not even close to the same way. The work of faithful love for us revealed on the cross where Jesus died is a gift that goes beyond 35 G's. It's the kind of gift that makes us right here and now and for all eternity. And of course, the only way that we would want to respond is by saying, yes, I trust that this is true. I repent of my sins. I turn away from that garbage. And now I embrace you, Jesus, on the cross where you died. 
This is what faith truly is, our response to the gospel of being made right through Jesus Christ. How does this sit with you? For those of us in this room today that might feel our faith is a tad dry these days, of course we believe all these things to be true, but there seems to be a disconnect somewhere in our heads or in our hearts. But hopefully this sits well with all of us here to know it's not up to us to change things, but to simply embrace the gift, the gospel, over and over again. How will this sit, this gospel, this way of talking about the faithful love of Jesus, which makes us right, how will that sit with the people who grew up here in West Michigan and have walked away from Christian community? Have walked away, maybe it's because of our own faults. We might have gotten it wrong when they were younger, I don't know. Or maybe they just wanted to do other things. But nonetheless, the good news is good news for them as well. How will it sit with them if we effectively communicate the faithful love of Jesus revealed only at the cross? I trust it will reveal good things. I hope that you do too. I hope that you're inspired to go to those people even this day and remind them of the gospel and the outcome that it makes us right. I do hope so, but as we go out and do this work that Jesus commissions all of us to do, yes, every disciple is simultaneously an apostle. All y'all are missionaries. But before we push our seats back and go out the door, it's important for us to be aware of the fact that there is a tendency in all of us to have a Jesus plus message. That as clear as it is the gospel right now in our heads, in our hearts, as much as we celebrate the gift of the cross here and now, being made right in Jesus Christ, as true as this is, there is a tendency in all of us, yes, every single one of us, me included, to get a stumbling block, to put on an obstacle, to trip ourselves up. I love ancient history. I absolutely love it. Uh, a year ago, I got to go on a trip with some folks who are even here in this room today to Turkey, Greece, and Rome, uh, led by Rod and Libby Van Sokoma. A life-changing experience. I got to learn to love the Bible in a brand new way. And while I was there as a student of ancient history, I was reminded of the fact that the Greeks and the Romans were people who loved theater. They loved acting. They created these wonderful amphitheaters, big coliseums, places where plays could take place. And part of that is something called masks. The Greeks and the Romans were really good at building masks to put in front of the actors and the actresses to make the audience believe that the actors and the actresses are not who they truly are. A guy could put on a mask of a gal and the audience would believe, wow, that's actually a gal or a gal to a guy or whatever you want to use. But the masks were really important for this acting because the mask gave the impression to the audience the actor is somebody who they are not. I can see the looks in some of your eyes. The message is starting to hit home because we are the kinds of people, yes we are, I am too, that often puts on a mask. I put on a mask to give the impression to others I am who I am not. Now maybe today in 2018 we don't use the language of masks. Perhaps we use the word identity. 
Yes, identity is really popular in our jargon today. There are a few theologians who are also pastors who claim that the biggest threat to evangelical Christianity, that is gospel Christianity, is this idea of identity theology. Identity theology or identity masks for our time in history is first and foremost, I am a guy or I am a gal. I am, uh, in appearance, I'm a hipster. I'm really not a hipster, I promise you that. I don't even know what that is. Is it candy? I don't know. Uh, Or I'm traditional where I wear clothes like flannels. Politically, I'm conservative or I'm liberal. Uh, The kind of Christians, I'm I'm evangelical, Bible Christian, or I'm a liberal liturgical Christian. Uh, uh, Vocationally, I'm a plumber. No, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. No, I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. Uh, It can also lead into our education, right? I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. You have a PhD. We can easily allow these parts of our identity to become the very first thing that others see in us. It becomes the very first thing because all others can see is the mask. Here's my mask. My mask that I often put on is the mask of I can get it done. I've got this. I'm a church planner. That's what we're made to do, right? We're made to push through the hard stuff. And that is something that I've had to really grapple with in the last 10 months is I came to the end of myself about three months into this church plant where I knew I didn't have this. I didn't tell other people that, my wife included. I kept trying to put in those long work weeks. I kept trying to solve all the problems of the church, to anticipate the next strategic move, all those sorts of things. I was trying to do it all on my own because my favorite mask is, I've got it. Thankfully, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God brought me to the end of myself, and boy, has he done this almost every single week since then, where I come to the end of myself on my knees full of tears in my eyes saying, I don't have this. I can't lead this thing in my own strength or ability. I don't have capacity. I need you. The gospel is not the gospel of independence. The gospel is the gospel of utter dependence. And when we attempt to put on the mask, when we attempt to have others see our identity before they see the gospel, hear the gospel with our words, we are doing the same thing. And we are doing the same thing because our identity is not nearly as important or as good as the faithful love of Jesus, which makes us right. And so what shall we do? What way can we get out of this mess? Well, the good news is Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians, and in that letter, verse 20, he gives us a lot of clarity on the answer. Yes, the answer to the problem of wearing masks is right there in verse 20 when Paul says this very simply, but yet so clearly. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I Paul had been crucified with Christ. The neat thing that Paul does grammatically with the word crucified, this verb in this sentence, is it's in the present, in the perfect tense. It's not past, it's not present, it's not future. It is ongoing, already started, continuing to happen right now and will happen in the future forever. Paul is saying that I am continually, always being crucified, co-crucified, with Jesus. 
the answer to the question of how to remove our mask, to throw those things on the ground and watch them shatter into a thousand pieces, is to recognize that all of our lives are at the cross. Not that being on the cross is our way to save other people. It is not. It is simply the way that we get to live from here on out. Because if we're living our lives crucified, throwing our masks down, being removed from us, people will see more of Jesus than they will see us. It'll point them back to the ultimate event where Jesus reveals his faithful love, the cross. If you're not sure that this is exactly what Paul means, well, let me take you over to Philippians where Paul throws down his mask, where he removes his identity that once gave him a ton of confidence. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 down. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, masks, identity, I, Paul, have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, whatever were gains, masks, identity to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, yes, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I now consider my masks, my identity, garbage that I may gain him. That's the way it gets removed is through crucifixion. But then the new way we get to live a life that effectively communicates the gospel with our words and with our everyday lives is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. One of my favorite passages of scripture right now because it's the one that I'm finding my place in all the time. Verse 9. But he, Jesus, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insult, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, yes, when I am weak, then and only then am I strong. Paul is saying the way out of the mess is to be crucified with Christ. Throw the masks down, watch them shatter all the floor, and then identify ourselves as truly weak. Weak in the eyes of the world around us. And when we live into this weakness, then and only then can the power of the gospel pour right through our words and through our everyday lives. To end our time together, yes, it's now time to end. You're probably looking at your watches going, yeah, come on, dude. But now it's time to end. I'm going to end with an example that has really been helpful for me to see the way to live into weakness so that Christ can speak through me. It's a movie that I do not like to watch. No, it's not one of those love stories that I avoid at all costs. It's a different kind of movie where it has Cuba Gooding Jr. and he plays a person named Radio. And in this movie, Radio, 
uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. is a fellow in the 1960s in a town in South Carolina that is really big on football. And there's a football coach played by Ed Harris, another great actor. And in this movie, Ed Harris sees Cuba Gooding Jr. consistently around the football field. He is a young fellow who cannot speak. Uh, he doesn't seem to respond because he has some developmental disabilities, some special needs. And as he's lingering around the football field, Ed Harris continues to see him. And then one day, uh, radio ends up with a football. Another day, he gets a water bottle. And then eventually, Ed Harris, the football coach, goes to this weak human being that they call radio. He starts to invest in his life because weak people need the stronger people to survive. And as he's investing himself, teaching him things, he brings him onto the football team to help out with equipment and cheering the team on. And it becomes a really beautiful story where this guy, Radio, is now a part of something bigger than himself. At the same time, Radio is now going to the high school. He's learning how to read. Yes, he's in his 20s, but he never was allowed to go to school because of his special needs. And he's learning how to read. And he's learning how to communicate and be heard and understood by other people. It's a power movie. It's one that makes me cry every time. That's exactly why I don't like to watch it. But every time I watch it, the end of the movie blows me away. It blows me away because at the end of the movie, Ed Harris goes to the barber shop where all the guys do the business of the town. And in the barber shop one night, Ed Harris looks at everybody in the town, all the leaders, the strong people who know the story of radio. And he says to them, we thought for the last few years, we've been teaching radio radio how to live we've gotten it wrong he's teaching us because radio understood that in weakness Christ's power is effectively communicated not just with the things that we say with our words persuasively but more importantly with the way that we live our lives crucified with the one who expresses faithful love to us a love that makes us right Jesus. Crossroads Bible, would you please pray with me? Dear Lord, we love you. <laughs> we love you because you love us. I thank you that being home with the family has been a wonderful day. And I pray that our time together has been used for us to be better at communicating the love that you have, not just for us, but for the world. Our prayer is simply this, that you'll give us the boldness to say things we don't feel comfortable saying, the wisdom knowing when to say them, but more importantly, the humility to know that we are weak and we need your power. Holy Spirit, move through us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.